series of God's Word, which I know is a big surprise to you. Now, chapter 18, to me, is very fascinating, okay? It's kind of divided into two sections. We have the first section from verses 1 through 12, which we'll be going over here this morning. Next time, we'll go over the second section in 13 through 27. And so, beginning here in verse 1 of Exodus, it says, And Jethro, priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses, for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, we'll go a little bit more into depth in this here in a moment, but up until this point, before meeting with Moses again, it's been a while, and he has heard. It's hard to not hear living in Midian, somewhat close proximity, you know, to where Egypt is on the other side of the Red Sea there, and... um, No doubt, if you recall, that Joseph got sold by Midianite Midianite traders, Ishmaelites, into Egypt. So you have people that travel back and forth, that trade and on the king's highway. And so as you're about your business, you're always going to run into travelers and other people. And uh, word has gotten out of what's going on in Egypt. And so he's heard about how the Egyptian army has been destroyed. He's heard, you know, that this guy named Moses had led uh, the, the, the slaves out of Egypt. They're now in the area where Moses first left from Midian. Um, still haven't met up with Jethro, but Jethro isn't too far away at this point. And so he's been hearing all sorts of things. And so now he comes to be able to meet up with Moses again. Now, we first come across Jethro in, uh, in chapter 2 of, of Exodus, Moses' father-in-law. And so this is the time when Moses kills the Egyptian and flees from Egypt because now Pharaoh wants to kill him. And so he finds his way all the way out to Midian. It's there in Midian that he meets Jethro's daughter, Zipporah. Zipporah is, is a shepherdess, and her and her sisters are about to water the sheep, and all these big, fat, meanie-head other shepherds come along, and, uh, and, and shoo her away so they could water their own sheep first, okay? And so Moses sees this, and so he intervenes and stands up for her, and being a big Egyptian, you know, warrior-looking guy at that point, it was very easy for him to shoo away the other, you know, shepherds. And so she was able to water her sheep uh, at that time. And so she gets back, and then Jethro says, you know, you're usually not back this early because you have the other shepherds to contend with, and they always wire their sheep first. How, how is it that you got back so early? And she talks about this Egyptian that stood up for her, and he kind of goes, well, where is he? We should invite him to a meal, you know? So they do. And so um, he's invited at that point to stay for a meal and then to actually stay with him. And we read in Exodus 2.21 that Moses was content to live with the man, meaning Jethro, And he gave Zipporah his daughter to Moses, in other words, to be his wife. And so it's the next verse in chapter 3, verse 1, that we read that he's a priest. It says, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Now, if you don't know, when we went over this before, we were able to show that the Midianites have come from the sons of Abraham. So in Genesis 25, verse 1, after Sarah had died... It says that Abraham again took a wife. Her name was Keturah. And so she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, and Midian. And this is where the Midianites came from. So no doubt, Abraham taught all his kids the one true God. 
Um, members of his own household he would have taught as well. And so uh, Midian is one of his kids. He, he, he would have known the one true God, Midian. And then so the Midianites come from him. Um, and here we have a priest by the name of Jethro, who is the, God, who is the priest of the God of Midian. And that would, if you were to ask me, would be, uh, would be Yahweh. So, um, so, he runs, so Moses runs into a family in Midian that worships God. And so that's kind of like the last that, that we hear of Jethro until chapter 4 in the sense of um, Moses gets his calling there at uh, Mount Sinai, the burning bush experience. God calls him and says, hey, you're now going to go to Egypt to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And then he's told this, that in verse 18, it says, so Moses went, returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, said to him, please let me go, return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. So that's the last that we've heard of Jethro, okay, until now. Verse 2, chapter 18. Then Jethro, father, uh, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in the foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer. For he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he is encamped at the mountain of God. Now, where is the mountain of God? It's Mount Sinai. Okay, it's Mount Sinai. So because of that, look what it says here in chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness, so Israel camped there before the mountain. Okay. So, because of what it says here in chapter 19, it seems like chapter 17 should lead right into 19. Because they're in Rephidim, then they move to Mount Sinai, Right there where the mountain of God is, it kind of gives you the intro of, of their travels, of how they're done traveling. They're now at Mount Sinai. It introduces us to Mount Sinai where the receiving the law is going to take place and all that wonderful stuff. Okay, So because of that, that there, there are others, there, there are many people who would say chapter 18 is kind of, you know, isn't in chronological order. Okay. Because here you already have them at the mountain of God in chapter 18, yet we're introduced to them traveling and coming to the mountain of God in chapter 19. You following? So they would say that chapter 18 is kind of more or less a parenthetical. It interrupts the chronological order here in the book of Exodus. And the reasons they give are three. For one, he's encamped at the mountain of God. And yet we read in chapter 19 how it comes from Rephidim to that place. Okay, And here he's already at this place. Verse 12 talks about burnt offerings and sacrifices before God. Again, they would say that that's before the mountain of God, all right? Um, And in verse 20, even though we don't get into that here today, um, you have an episode where after Jethro hears all that God has done, um, he sees how Moses goes out the next day from morning to evening and judges the people. You know, they come to him with his problems and he gives judgment and things like that. And so he says, that's not really good. And what you need to do is that you need to teach the people the different 
statutes and laws. And, and so someone would say, well, wait a second, the law hasn't been handed down yet, so obviously chapter 18 would be after the handing down of the law. Okay. So for that reason, they would say this is a parenthetical. This is being spoken of here, even though it really happened later on. Okay. So, and this could be true. That absolutely could be true. And, and we'll, even if that is true, there is a reason why chapter 18 is here, as we'll get into here in a moment. But you don't have to go along that train of thought. So um, when it comes to they're encamped at the mountain of God, <clears throat> the reason when you read chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, if you really read it in its context and everything, chapter, uh, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 19 is just giving you a summary of how they got to the mountain. All right, and so, um, and I would submit to you that verses one and two uh, bring to the forefront of your mind what God first spoke to Moses when he was there at the burning bush, where it says in Exodus three verse twelve. I'll have it up here on the screen. It says so. He said to Moses at the burning bush experience. There, he said, "Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt." You shall serve God on this mountain. So chapter 19, verses 1 and 2, is really just the fulfillment of the original instructions where everything kind of from chapter 19 on goes into your before uh, God there at Mount Sinai. And this is all that God does here on Mount Sinai. I've given you the law, speaking to you, Moses, before the people, lays it all out. Okay. If... Verses 1 and 2 were put into uh, the beginning of chapter 18. Most people would say, okay, not a problem now, okay? They're already at, at the mountain there, and here we have this episode with um, um, Jethro. But they would still say it's out of order because all these other things hasn't taken place. The reason why verse 1 and 2 of 19 isn't before 18 is because it disrupts the flow of the typology that began in chapter 16. That's why. That's why 18 is here, is because it continues the flow of the typology that God is trying to speak to us here, okay? The typology is supposed to be spoken to here. Now, the other two reasons, all right? The other two reasons here. It may be that um, when it's speaking here of burnt offerings and sacrifice, well, that has to be done there before the mountain of God and, and, and everything else. Um, and you don't know about burnt offerings and sacrifices until after the law is given, isn't, isn't true, okay? Um, remember, Jethro is from the tribe of Midian, an offspring of Abraham. Abraham was told to do burnt offerings, as, as well as Noah before him. We read in, in Genesis 8.20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, took every clean animal and every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar, Okay? Uh, verse 13 of Genesis 22, Abraham was asked to uh, sacrifice Isaac, okay? And then as before, he, and as he's about to sacrifice Isaac, God says, stop. And then it says in verse 13, then Abraham lifted his eyes, looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram, offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham knows of burnt offerings. No one knows about burnt offerings before him. Moses knows about burnt offerings. We're told 
that Pharaoh, after the ninth plague, when darkness was over all the land, that he called for Moses and basically tells him, okay, you can go now into the wilderness and worship. But he says this in Exodus 10, 24, then Pharaoh called to Moses and says, go, serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones go also. But Moses said, you must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. So just because Jethro does uh, sacrifice and burnt offerings doesn't mean he first learns that after the giving of the law. Okay? He has known about this before. Everybody's known about these before. And then the last thing they would say, well, teaching the Israelites God's statutes and laws, that had to have come after the giving of the law. Not necessarily. Not at all, as a matter of fact. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 17, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations there shall be blessed in him, for I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. So obviously, some sort of moral laws and commands and statutes have been handed down by God to Abraham to be handed down to all his descendants. Later on, we read in Genesis 26, 5, because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws, tells me there are commandments, statutes, and laws that God has already given. Okay? These statutes and laws spoken by Jethro could have been just those laws given by God through Abraham, passed down, And the people being brought out are struggling with how they're treating one another and what they're doing. And so he's there to kind of um, uh, judge those things. And Jethro saw that and said, hey, this is a better way of doing it. Okay. So he could be talking about those judgments and laws. So it doesn't necessarily have to be taken out of order. Yes, chapter 18, they are now at at Mount Sinai. Okay. And so to continue on that way, chapter 19 is there to give a quick little summary or recap before it gets into the rest of the things that happened there at Mount Sinai. Regardless of whether it is in chronological order or isn't, God placed it here for a reason, and there is no mistake. There is no mistake. And I believe the reason that God has inserted this here is because it's more important to show the consistency of the type before us than it is to begin with what God is going to do there uh, at Mount Sinai, okay? Remember what a typology is. It is a foreshadowing. It is a picture that is given of a future event. Now, remember in chapter 16, how God brought manna down from heaven This wonderful bread from heaven tasted like honey. This was a type. It was a picture of the person of Jesus Christ. Scripture interprets scripture. And Jesus said, uh, that, that was speaking of me. So we read about in John chapter 6 where Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. 
This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. And then he says this, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. I'm the bread of life. I am manna, is what he's saying. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So we see him being the bread of life. We see him saying that I am the manna. So the manna is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 17, we see Moses striking the rock at Horeb. They, they come there in Rephidim, and uh, there's no water there. And so God tells them, I want you to go to this rock over here. You're going to strike this rock. And as you strike this rock, water is going to come out, okay? And so Paul later explains to him, guess what? That rock that was struck, that's Jesus. What? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ, their Messiah. Hmm. The rock was Christ, Paul says. So, remember we had mentioned how it says that God's presence was there on the rock or in the rock. And so because that, it's a picture of divine judgment of God striking himself. And notice what happens. Water comes out. And that represents the Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he was before the Samaritan woman at the well there in Samaria, would say this. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, speaking of the well water. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. In John chapter 7, verse 37, it says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, meaning tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. By this he spoke concerning the Spirit. Whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus himself says, the water speaks of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? He can't give the Holy Spirit because he hasn't died for the sin of mankind yet. After he is struck, after judgment has come upon him, that's when the water comes forth, speaking of the Holy Spirit. So, we have this slide right here. The manna from heaven is Jesus. The rock is Jesus. The rod that smites the rock speaks of judgment, which is Jesus. Water poured out speaks of the Holy Spirit. We're going to add to this as we continue on, okay? So you're, I, I hear pictures being taken and everything else. Wait until that last one. We have a, like four more dots, okay, coming. All right, just so you know. So that happened last service as well. John 14, verse 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send by my name, he will teach you all things. 
Bring to remembrance all things I said to you. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So the helper is the Holy Spirit. Again, he has to go away. He has to be judged for the sin. He needs to be raised from the dead. He needs to go to the right hand of the Father. Then the Holy Spirit will come. So when you receive the work that Jesus did for you on the cross, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. That's the way it works today. And we read that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12. It says that we... That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory in him, meaning Christ, you trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So first you believe the gospel, okay? You trust in Jesus for what he did for you on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, all right? So... Again, the manna speaks of Jesus coming down from heaven. Then in chapter 17, the smiting of the rock is seen Jesus being judged by God. The issue of water coming from the rock speaks of the Holy Spirit springing forth. And then would we see the second half, chapter 17, we see the Israelites got attacked by the Amalekites. Up until that point, God had been fighting Israel's battles. They've had to do nothing except go where he told them to go, things like that. And he held off the Egyptian army and then had them go through the Red Sea. And then God is one that destroyed their army. They didn't have to do anything for that. But now through this typology that we're seeing here, all of a sudden you're now getting manna from heaven. The rock is now struck. The water comes forth. That speaks all about the church age of the Lord coming, dying, and now the Holy Spirit. And now because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, God is now going to use you to fight the battle against your flesh. Okay? What does God tell Moses? Choose for yourself some men and go out and fight. Now I'll fight through you, but guess what? Now we're going to be fighting together. There is a role that you're going to have to play, and guess what? You're going to go to battle. And so we discussed that last time, all right? So now, when we look at this, see how we added one right there? Right there. Another dot right there. You go up the Christmas tree right here, and then you come to that dot right there. So all this is the same. Manna from heaven is Jesus. The rock is Jesus. The rod that smites the rock speaks of judgment upon Jesus. The water poured out speaks of the Holy Spirit. Amalekite speaks of flesh versus spirit. So now we have a battle for the first time, all right? But through the Holy Spirit, you can be victorious over the flesh, all right? So now we're here in chapter 18, all to get to this place. And so that's what's going on now. Everything that you see up there, that's what's going on in our lives now. This is the church age. That's what's going on. Now, the next part here, I believe, is inserted here to continue to show the next picture of the future glory of Israel from Israel's perspective. Okay, as we see this continue on, the next dispensation to come, next economy that we're going to see here is a picture of the future glory of Israel being brought back to the Lord. Because as we're going to see here, they're separated from God right now. Israel as a nation. Okay, not Jews as people, but Israel as a nation. Okay, because Jews can receive the Lord and become part of the, the, the church there and be a Messianic Jew and everything else, which is awesome. And that's what we're praying for and hoping for. The church has not replaced Israel. They are separate. We teach that here. So, starting here in verse 1 again in chapter 18, going back here to Exodus, says, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, 
Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a stranger in the foreign land. Name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, kissed him, and they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. So, So let's look at Zipporah for a moment here. Moses' wife was sent away along with his children. When that happened, we're not exactly sure, but it probably happened before he went all the way to Egypt. Somewhere along the line, I think it was at the circumcision of one of his sons, that uh, he probably said, yeah, you need to go back. I don't don't think it's good for you to come with me. She was a little mad at him, you know, things like that. We'll get to that in a moment. And so she was separated from her husband. Wife, husband, separated from each other for a time, for a time. Now, we're looking at a type here. Zipporah cannot be a type of the church because the church is called the bride of Christ in 2 Corinthians 11.1, 1, looked at as a chaste virgin, which means maiden, bride, to be given over to Jesus. So we know that it's not speaking of the church because the church is never referred to as a wife of Yahweh, of God, all right? But Israel is. Israel is seen as the wife of God. Okay, and so I would submit to you that Zipporah being separated from her husband shows Zipporah as Israel being separated from her husband, Yahweh. And so we read about that in Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 8, Jeremiah 31, 31 and 32, um, Hosea 2, 1 through 13, Isaiah 50, verse 1, and Jeremiah 3, 8, and other areas as well. I want you to go to Hosea 2. I'm going to read you what it says in Isaiah 54 and 31, but you guys go to Isaiah 2. I'll meet up with you there in a moment. Hosea, what did I say? Isaiah? Hosea, Isaiah, you know, figure it out. Go with the Spirit, you'll get there. Hosea 2. Okay, go there. But in Isaiah 54... Verse 5, it says, and this is God speaking to Israel. He says, for your maker is your husband. Boom. Okay. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken, grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. But then he says this, for a mere moment, I have forsaken you. There's a reason, as we'll see here in a moment. But with great mercies, I will gather you. So for a time, you will be forsaken from me. But with great mercies, I will gather you again. With a little wrath, I've hid my face. I'm a little ticked at you. All right? Because of that, I'm hiding my face for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Okay? In Jeremiah 31, 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. And I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. 
my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. And then we have Hosea, where you are right now. This is the Lord again speaking to Israel, and he says this in this language in verse 1. Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. Bring charge against your mother. Bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight. So this gives reason of why uh, no longer his wife, because of her harlotries and her adulteries between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked, expose her as in the day she was born, make her like a wilderness, set her like a dry land, slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot, meaning she has gone after other gods. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. So she is saying it's these other gods that have provided all my needs. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, Yahweh. For then it was better for me than now, which is true. For, and here's the reason, she did not know that I gave her grain, wine, oil, multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal, or Baal, however you want to say that. Now, later on, as we get into uh, the Ten Commandments and everything else, God is going to say in the very first commandment, he's going to say, I'm a jealous God. And you kind of go, well, why are you a jealous God? What do you, what do you have to be jealousy in? Well, there is such a thing as righteous jealousness, okay? And, and, and God is righteously jealous because he's the one that's blessing the people. So if they're going to turn and worship another God and thank another God for giving them what God himself has given them, that, that makes him mad. And that makes him jealous because that affection be, should be going to him, okay? It's kind of like... Uh, uh, it, with our kids, you know, when, when we gave them birthday presents and stuff like that, if we gave our, our kid uh, a birthday gift, and then they would turn around and, and thank the chair, okay, that that make me a little mad. No, 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 no. Mom and I are the ones who gave that to you, and, and they don't even recognize you as you're talking to them, and they're thinking, oh, thank you so much, beloved chair, for giving this to me and everything else. Well... <clears throat> Two, thi- two things are going to happen. It's going to make me mad, for one, you know, to where I need to shake them until I, I get their undivided attention or whatever and say, no, I'm the one that gave it to me. Your mom and I, the ones that gave that to you. Secondly, I'm going to burn that chair. <laughs> I'm jealous of the affection that chair is getting because it's supposed to be going to us, you know. Well, God, it's the same way. He's going, whoa, whoa, whoa. All thanksgiving, all affection for everything should be going to me. I'm the one that provided that for you. But instead, they're going off to false idols. And so that's what they're doing. And so he's, he's jealous for them, he says here. And so he goes on, he says, For she did not know, and again, that I'm the one that gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil, the silver, the gold. <clears throat> Verse 9 says, Therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time, and my new wine in its season, 
And I will make my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, new moon, Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me, so I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense." She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry, went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says Yahweh. Why is God separated from Israel? Because she chased after her lovers, idols, forgot the Lord, her husband. Isaiah 50 verse 1 says, thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I have put away? Jeremiah 3.8, Then I saw for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. So now, <clears throat> Israel is separated from her husband, Yahweh. Now we have this again. Okay, we have this slide here. There will be another dot. Keep going. Here it is. Manna from heaven is Jesus. The rock is Jesus. The rod that smites the rock speaks of the judgment upon Jesus. Water poured out speaks of the Holy Spirit. Amalekite speaks of flesh versus spirit. Zipporah speaks of Israel separated from her husband. So, but there's a day that's coming when she will be reunited with her husband. That's the very next verse in Hosea. Go to Hosea 2. Now let's read verse 14 says, therefore, behold, I will allure her, <clears throat> will bring her into the wilderness, speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Israel, uh, land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. In that day I will make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword of battle. I will shatter before the earth to make them lie down safely. That's the millennial kingdom. That's the millennial kingdom. I will betroth you to me Forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me. In righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy, I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. That's the next thing on the horizon for Israel, okay? Um, <clears throat> so, what keeps Israel today from coming back to her husband? The same thing that has separated Zipporah from Moses, the blood. Exodus 4, verse 24. This is the last time we see Zipporah before now. It says, came to pass on the way at the encampment as Moses was about to leave to carry out his marching orders, you know, that God has given him to let his people go to go there to Egypt. It says, and it came to pass on the way <clears throat> at the encampment that the Lord met him, sought to kill him, then Zipporah took a sharp stone, cut off the foreskin of her son, 
cast it at Moses' feet and said, surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go, and then she said, you are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. It seems that Zipporah did not like this bloody ritual. She was offended because of the blood, the bloody ritual of circumcision. This is the last recording that we have of Zipporah until now. We have her offended because of the blood. Twice it says, you know, surely you're a husband of blood to me. So he let him go, and she said, you're a husband of blood because of the circumcision. I believe this also speaks of Israel's alienation from God today. Paul would tell us this. 1 Corinthians 1.22 For Jews request a sign, Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Jesus spilling his blood on the cross is what we preach. To the Jews, a stumbling block. That offends them. And to the Greeks, foolishness. It was the bloodshedding that was a stumbling block to Zipporah. And it is the bloodshedding of Jesus' blood upon the cross that's a stumbling block to the Jews. Notice that Zipporah also has two sons. One is named Gershon. Means a foreigner in the land or a stranger there. Okay? Eliezer means God is my helper or helper. Um, Interesting that both sons represent two groups of people. One, those who are stranger there in the land, and the other, those who have the helper. First group represents, I believe, the Jews. Israel, even though they're in the land, they're still strangers in the land, in that they're strangers, in a sense, to who their Messiah is. And they have been strangers as they've been dispersed throughout the nations, and they've been persecuted without mercy wherever they have landed. Even though some have gathered back in the land, they're still a foreigner to their Messiah. They are still strangers in their own land, also in the fact that they're fighting for their very existence. This is going on right now with the war of Hamas in Gaza. Um, We see tensions brewing there at the northern borders with Hezbollah, okay? And and we see around the world this amazing rise of anti-Semitism, which makes no sense. We haven't seen this much hatred for the Jews since the Holocaust. And it makes no sense. But it makes spiritual sense. makes spiritual sense. It's amazing to me how the Jews get blamed for everything, as I've mentioned before. You know, no matter what, social, whatever's going on, Israel's to blame. You know, the Jews are to blame. Nobody ever... Blames, you know, the Incas. Nobody ever believes, blames the, the, the Peruvians. Nobody wants to blame the Danes or the Scots. Nobody wants to blame anybody else that has a smaller country, kind of like Israel does. They have been persecuted for the last 2,000 years. And there's a reason for it. Jesus, when he came and was there in Jerusalem... In, uh, in Matthew chapter 23, he says, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills its prophets, the ones that stones those who are sent to her. How often I, want, how often I wanted to gather your children like a mother hen gathers its chicks. 
wanted to do that. But guess what? You were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, speaking of 70 AD when judgment's going to come and temples are going to be destroyed, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. For I say to you, you shall see me no more unless you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I say to you, you will see me no more. Unless you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a Hallel Psalm, Psalm 118. That is supposed to be spoken, cried out to the Messiah. They started to do it. Save now, Hosanna, when he was coming in. And then they changed their mind and said, crucify him. Five days later. Oh, you're so close. Hosanna, save now. That's being spoken to the Messiah. We see it, it's you. And yet, you weren't doing the things that we thought you were going to do, so crucify him. Oh, you were so close. But unless you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, I will not come back. You will not see me. So Jesus dies on the cross, has victory over Satan, powers and principality. Death no longer has power. Okay? I now have taken those keys of death away from Satan. I now hold them. So those who put their faith in me, guess what? You will go the direction I have gone, where I've died and rose again and now at the right hand of the Father. You believe in me? That is your journey. And that's why death has no sting for believers in Jesus Christ. It's no big deal. Absent body, present with the Lord. It's a pretty good deal. Pretty good deal. But for Israel that rejected their Messiah, guess what? Unless you look upon him whom you have pierced, Zechariah uh, 12.10, you will see me no more. You have to look upon him whom you have pierced, your Messiah, Jesus, cry out to him as a nation. Guess what? We now recognize you're the Messiah. That will happen in the seven-year tribulation period. That's when they, uh, the, 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 the veil leaves are able to see that Jesus is the one. They cry out to him and Jesus comes back again, Revelation 19. Okay, but until then, he's not coming back in the way of setting up his kingdom here on earth with his Jewish people that recognize him as the Messiah, okay? Satan knows this. He already lost at the cross. He only has one chance, and it's really no chance, but he thinks he has one chance. I got an idea. Guess what? If there are no Jews to cry out, Blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says he's not coming back to rule here on this earth. I know what I can do now that I lost at the cross. I know what I can do. I can get rid of all the Jews. And if I can get rid of all the Jews, then Jesus can't come back. Is it any wonder, since the cross, the Jews have been so heavily persecuted? You know, Abraham began his venture about the same time as the East was developing, so China. Netanyahu, years and years ago when he met with the uh, Chinese prime minister, let him know and just said, just so you know, we had our birth about the same time. There's a billion Chinese. How many Jews are there in the world? About 16 million. How is that possible when you start at the same time? Because of all the persecution they've always gone through. That's why. It's demonic. It's absolutely demonic 
to want to bring harm to the Jews. Absolutely demonic. Because that is what Satan's plan is now so Jesus can't return again. John 14, 25, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, bring to remembrance all things I have said. It is the church that has the Holy Spirit, the helper. So let's look at this again here. More dots. Okay. Um, There should be more here. Where's the rest? There's another part here. Here we go. The manna from heaven is Jesus. The rock is Jesus. The rod that smites the rock speaks of judgment upon Jesus. Water poured out speaks of the Holy Spirit. Amalekites speak of flesh versus spirit. Zipporah speaks of Israel separated from her husband. The two sons, Gershom, Israel, Eleazar, the church. They're not one and the same. I find this really exciting that during the church age, as we are right now, many Jews are coming to know Jesus, which is awesome. And that's what we want to do. We want to see as many people come to know the Lord as possible, especially the Jew, to the Jew first. I remember back in uh, the early 80s, I was first introduced to a Messianic church. I go, what is that? Someone said, well, these are Jews that believe in Jesus as a Messiah. And I go, oh, wow. And I think at that time, you can go back, I believe there's only three Messianic churches in the United States. I think both of them, two were in California, one was on the East Coast. I don't think there was anything in between. If I'm off, not by much. There are so many now. There's three just around the Denver area. There's one in Aurora. There's one in the Springs. I mean, they're everywhere now. God is doing a work with the Jewish people, and it's exciting and wonderful to see. It's very exciting and wonderful to see. Now, the time when Zipporah and her children were restored to Moses. This is a time when when Zipporah and her children are now being restored to Moses. Who's the one that brings that restoration? Jethro, a priest of God, but he's a Gentile priest. He doesn't come from uh, Isaac or Jacob. Yeah, he comes from Abraham, but not through Isaac and not through Jacob, to which the promise comes, to where the Jews come from. So he is a Gentile priest. He's the one that brings Zipporah back into relationship with Moses. Kind of like what Paul says in chapter 10 of Romans. Go there. Go to Romans 10. I think you'll find this very interesting. In Romans chapter 10, it says... Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. That's my prayer. I want everybody to be saved, but I also want the Jews to be saved, you know. And he says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. If you've ever met or known religious Jews, they have a zeal for God. They definitely have a zeal to God. But notice what he says here, but not according to knowledge meaning not a completion of what they're supposed to understand. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, of what God has put in place through his son, Jesus Christ, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness through their traditions. And this is how you get to God and all that kind of stuff. They're trying to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted 
to the righteousness of God, which is who? Jesus, as we see in the next verse. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the righteousness that God has set up now. Is through his son, Jesus. Is through his son, Jesus. For everyone who believes in him. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is the, of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? Don't, don't be saying, don't build up your own way of how you get to God. Okay? Your own righteousness. Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Meaning what he did wasn't that special. He doesn't need to sit up there anymore. Okay? Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. To be able to say that, you know, that Jesus didn't do it all and so he's still down there and you're going to somehow bring him up. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. What is, what is Paul and all the other apostles preaching? Christ, him crucified. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's your righteousness. So you want to become righteous? Do that. Do that. Believe in your heart. You got to be sincere when you do it. Okay, God, come into my heart, I believe. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. Okay. People like to say, Dave, you believe in easy believism. All they have to do is prayer, prayer, and they're, they're saved. Well, no, they have to be sincere in doing it. But if they're sincere in doing it, yes, they are saved. It really is easy to believe. The difficulty comes in the walk. The difficulty comes in being an actual disciple of Jesus Christ. That's the difficulty. Very hard to deny yourself daily, pick up the cross, follow him. Every disciple is a believer, but not every believer is a disciple. So I, God made it very easy. I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't have to do anything physical to get to heaven. You don't have to do this great list of difficult deeds to get to heaven. No, I I did it all. I paid for the penalty. I sacrificed myself. Guess what? My blood covers it all. All you have to do is now put your faith in what I have done and come walk with me. That's it. And so... He goes on and said, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness. There has to be a sincerity there. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The moment I die, that will be the best decision I ever made when I gave my life to Christ. And I will not be ashamed for doing that. I'll be so glad when that happens. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. I'll be there. Those who are going to be ashamed at their death are the ones that didn't put their faith in Jesus. They're going to be ashamed of how they lived their life. They're going to be ashamed of how foolish they were when the gospel was clearly preached to them. And they chose not to take it. They're going to be very ashamed at that point. But those who put their faith in Jesus, they will not. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction before Jew and Greek. The salvation, the way of salvation is the same for everyone. Same for everyone. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Wait a minute. I thought whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. That's speaking of Jesus. But now who calls out to Yahweh shall be saved. Well, which is it? Well, they're one and the same, or this wouldn't make sense. Hence, Yahweh is Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. 
goes on and says, How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Not only does God use us through the Holy Spirit to have victory over the flesh, he also works through us in order to dispense the gospel, to tell others. We are ambassadors for reconciliation, okay? We are ambassadors for Christ to be able to share the gospel with others. He's using us, working through us to be able to reach other people for Jesus Christ. And he says, it's beautiful for those who do that. I look at you and I see something beautiful, something marvelous when you do that. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. No, they haven't. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Because not everybody does. So then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. You have to hear the good news before you can accept the good news, receive the good news. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Interesting. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I'll provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. When is a nation not a nation? When it doesn't have physical borders. That's the church. That's the church. The church is made up of people everywhere. Every tribe, tongue, nation, peoples from all the different nations. He goes, I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. So just in case we start getting cocky, you know, aren't we a great nation, this church? You're a foolish nation. It means weak. But when we are weak, he is strong. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This nation that wasn't, that's the church. Peter would tell us in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It's who we are. That's what the church, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So Zipporah, being reunited to Moses with her children, speaks of a time that Israel is going to be reunited with her husband, Yahweh, the Lord, her Savior and Messiah. And that happens at the Millennial Kingdom. So now we look at this. Another dot. Manna from heaven is Jesus. The rock is Jesus. The rod that smites the rock speaks of judgment upon Jesus. The water poured out speaks of the Holy Spirit beginning of the church age. Amalekites speak of flesh versus spirit also during the church age. Zipporah speaks of Israel separated for her husband, which is today. You have Israel and you have the church. The two are not one, okay? The church is separate from Israel. It's not the same thing. We don't take over from Israel. We don't, not become, the new, we don't become Israel. But let's not forget this. We certainly came from them, okay? Where did Christianity come from? Judaism, okay? That is why we are now called sons of Abraham, Okay, in Galatians, it tells us that. So again, we, we come from, we have been grafted in, but understand where our history comes from. It still comes from Abraham, all right? 
Zipporah and all her family reunited with her children, Gershom, Eleazar, okay, with her husband, Moses, who represents God. This speaks to the millennial kingdom. Remember, the, at, um, uh, when the church is raptured, seven-year tribulation period, that's when Israel comes to know its Messiah, okay? When Jesus comes back in Revelation chapter 19, he sets up his kingdom here on earth. Well, guess what? The church has already been raptured. We've already been given our glorified bodies. We are told that we're going to reign with him. Well, where is Jesus reigning from? Jerusalem, New Mount Zion, all the other mountains kind of collapse. And so now there's just a raised area there of Jerusalem. That's where Jesus is reigning. We reign with him in our glorified bodies. But the only people that are allowed to live in Israel at that time are Jews. All the other people from other nations will be living in their other nations, coming to worship Jesus there, but the Jews only live there, and we in our glorified bodies are reigning with him, serving him as, as kings and priests. Dave, what are we going to be doing in our new glorified bodies? I have no idea. No idea whatsoever. All I know is that this new glorified body, we are now outside even the presence of sin. Nothing can touch us, nothing can harm us, nothing like that. But those in the tribulation, when Jesus comes back, they continue to go in to the millennial kingdom in their sinful bodies. Satan is now put into uh, the abyss, the abuso, for a thousand years. So nobody can say, hey, Satan made me do it. You know, the devil made me do it. no. That will be gone, but you're still going to struggle in your sinful bodies, and you'll be having children, and you're going to be raising them up to know who, who God is, and then after a thousand years, the other nations rebel against God. It's, it's a crazy thing. We don't have time to go into all that, but just understand that we will be reigning with him in our glorified bodies, and again, I have no idea, but now you have the church and Israel together there during the millennial kingdom, everybody all together which I think completes the type that we're going through here today. So with that, I could end, but then you'd be behind the other services. <laughs> so we will continue on real briefly here to finish up verses all the way through 12. So in verse 7 of Exodus 18, go back there. Go back to where we started from, okay, as we're going through Exodus. It says in verse 7, So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him, uh, again, we see respect and humility. Moses, his father-in-law, Jethro. Moses, you know, when he left Jethro, you know, he was that stammering guy who wasn't, you know, I'd send someone else and not really sure of himself kind of a guy. All right? So he comes back. He's completely different at this point. He's kind of a big thing, kind of a big deal. All right? Guess what? Pharaoh's army's destroyed, and look at all these people following him. And so Jethro comes to him, and you would think that Jethro would bow down to him. No, he bows down to Jethro, showing humility and respect. And they ask each other about their well-being, and they went to his tent. Notice they talk about each other's health, their well-being. Jethro, how you doing, man? Good to see you again. You don't look a day over 90. Oh, you look amazing. You know, Moses, oh, man, it looks like you lost a few pounds walking around and getting everybody out of of Egypt, you know, whatever they were saying there. They had these pleasantries that were exchanged, and how's your health? You're looking good, you know, what's been going on? And then, then it says, And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. First, Moses gives testimony of what the Lord has done, you know, with Pharaoh, the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the destroying the Egyptian armies, and then there were hardships. 
word hardship is a Hebrew word. Tela'ah means toil, distress, weariness, labor. Hardship was on the way of the journey. In other words, this journey in leaving Egypt was so difficult. I couldn't have done it without God, his strength, doing miracles, all those things, making the bitter water at Mara sweet, bringing manna from heaven, delivering them from the Amalekites. Oh, Jethro, it's been absolutely amazing. That is how our testimony should come forth with other people. What has God done for you? Because he has done for you. You know, when Paul and Timothy were talking to the Colossians, they said this, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. We can all say that. Well, hey, I just want to let you know I know Jesus right now that I have been taken from darkness and guess what? I'm now part of the kingdom and God has shown me his great love through his son, Jesus. Every one of us has that testimony and then you can add to it and he's also done this, he's also done that, you know. And so because of his testimony, this brings a response from Jethro. Jethro obviously has seen it. The way that Moses is before him now is completely different than when he left. And hearing of all that God has done, it moves him. There's evidence to what Moses has said. He sees it, and it moves him to respond this way. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, blessed be the Lord. Now notice it says Lord. Again, all capitals, Yahweh. He's never said those words before. He's the the priest of God, Elohim, but it doesn't say Yahweh before. Now he's embracing Yahweh. Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. He sees the evidence. Look at all the people that have come with me. Obviously, everything he said is true. He sees his demeanor. He sees he's different. He sees the evidence. And it, and, and it requires a response. And this is a good response, obviously. A good response. Now I know Yahweh is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. So Jethro, up until this point, is believing of the God of Abraham and everything. But he hears of other gods, of other people. Okay, But he is a God. He believes in the God of Abraham. And he hears, hears what other gods have done you know, and do for their people and things like that. But now he knows this is the God. Okay, This is Yahweh, which is the personal name. And he now is using the personal name of God here. After hearing... Even more, he heard before he rejoices in the name of Yahweh, the Lord, okay? And so he now knows he is the one. In verse 12, it says, Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering, other sacrifice to offer to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. They all came together, fellowship under the same worship of the Lord, Yahweh, with burnt offering sacrifices, sat down to eat with one another. I love it at baptisms. I love it at other things that we do, that we fellowship one another when we have church in the park and we have this great kind of like feast that we have that we're all worshiping in the Lord and we're all eating together. That's fellowship, koinonia, to truly be able to eat and fellowship with one another under the banner of the person of Yahweh. Let's pray. (laughs) 